Welcome to Season 6 of American Political History, The Institution of Slavery, The Middle Passage. The slave merchants were barely more than pirates. Quite possibly at other times of the year, they were the pirates. These ships were often crewed with people recruited by press gang, that is captured off the streets or when they passed out near a tavern, or somehow duped into signing some sort of awful indentureship to escape some other horrible fate in their native countries. Most of the crew members were teenagers. On the Middle Passage, they were generally ten sailors for every hundred slaves. Once the ship had set sails, though, and were beyond the swimming distance back to the European port, any promises of good rations, proper or professional treatment, was out the door. The crews would be worked as hard as possible to the point of almost mutiny. The ship's human cargo was often treated with more forethought of preservation of life than the sailors that crewed the ships. The common strategy of many ship captains was to purposely treat the crew so poorly that they ran away at the first chance, at the first port they encountered, which the captain happened to schedule just prior to arriving at the port where they'd be selling the slaves and paying the crews. Thomas Clark studied English slave ship voyages between 1786 and 1787, noting that out of 3,170 seamen that left European ports, only 1,428 had returned. 642 were reported to have died, and another 1,000 were reported to have deserted. The crew ate bread and some sort of salted meat, around 6 ounces of both bread and meat for a whole day's work. The only access to water was through a straw, out of a bunghole on a barrel, which was often placed at the top of the main sailing mast to reduce unnecessary consumption. The crew would also be the first deprived of food. After all, they only needed to be healthy enough to make the voyage. When the sailors' rations were cut, it was not uncommon to see them begging the slaves for some of their rations, of course out of earshot of the officers. As the slave trade developed, European ships frequented many regions between Senegal and Angola on the West African coast. Ship manifests would read that they were headed to Senegambia, the Windward Coast, the Gold Coast, the Bight of Benin, the Bight of Bafra, the Congo, Angola. They would arrive at trading ports like Axum, Elmina, Cape Coast Shama, Enobamu, Kamanda, Dixcove, Cormentine and Christianburg, names that we have long forgotten today. The growth of the West African slave powers was new. For centuries, the East African slave trade dwarfed that of the West African slave trade. The East African slave trade was operated over land. Slave merchants would trek thousands of miles in their large caravans and would gather on their journey well over a thousand slaves before they reached their destination of North Africa or the Middle East. The slave trade coming from Africa was dominated by both Muslim Ottomans and Muslim Africans. The trade was shut off to Christians in times of religious conflict. So the Europeans were looking for ways around the Muslims to establish their own markets and relationships with African nations. The European slave trade and the wealth it generated for West African rulers displaced the traditional dominance of the East African slave trade. Initially, the supply of slaves for European merchants was furnished from populations on the coast, but as the demand for slaves increased over time, the Africans on the coast turned outside their regions to fill their ledgers. 
new elites rose to power. And Bafra, who is the largest exporter of slaves in the 18th century, local merchant families controlled all the different logistical aspects of the slave trade. They had monopolies over the commercial trade networks into the interior of Africa. In the 17th century, a new group of mulattoes, that is the bastard mixed sons of Africans and Portuguese, became wealthy by using their intrinsic heritage in both worlds to build trade networks that cut out many layers of middlemen in the slave trade. They would uniquely be able to purchase the slaves directly in the Congo or Angola and then sell those same slaves in the Portuguese slave markets. These mulatto children also gave European investors a certain amount of trust. Typically, European merchants were often dependent on using African merchants who promised a fair price initially, but when the company's ships arrived in Africa, the deal's details would change. So it was judged an advantage to have a trustworthy relationship to ensure company profitability. And the bastard sons of an important person in the company was a lot less likely to spoil that relationship by the last-minute negotiations than some random African merchant. When slaves were brought to a European slave trader, they were carefully examined from head to foot without regard for the slave's modesty. Then the slaves were marched around for physical examination so their limbs and physical capabilities could be tested. Then their mouth, teeth, ears, eyes, fingers, toes would all be examined. Each defect would be noted and used as a haggling point for a lower price. Slaves who had too many defects and could not sell would be sold to local mining companies or just simply killed off and dumped like trash. European slave merchants rarely purchased slaves under 14. They generally purchased slaves between 15 and 35, focusing on potential labor output for plantations. After purchase, the slaves would be branded with the company insignia and brought into one of the European coastal dungeons. After purchase, the slaves would be branded with the company's insignia and brought to one of the European coastal forts dungeons. There they would dwell, standing room only, eating water and bread until the arrival of the slaving vessel. On the day of departure, the slave, who had been until that point confined in a dungeon, would be given an abundant meal out of the blue, which might seem like a gift, but like all other things about slavery, it was not done out of kindness or concern for the slave. It was a preventative business practice. The meal was to give the slave additional caloric reserves before the voyage across the Atlantic on a slave vessel. After the meal, the slaves were chained in pairs by the ankles, stripped naked, then loaded like cargo into the vessels. The men were loaded on their side, slotted side by side below deck like boxes into a jigsaw to maximize cargo space. The slave merchants justified the practice of stripping all slaves naked as a method of ensuring cleanliness and health during the voyage. Women and boys were often left on the ship's deck. We have a few accounts describing the voyage from a perspective of the slave. This is one of them, an account from Olauda Iquano. The first object that saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast of the sea was a slave ship, which was riding at anchor, waiting for its cargo hold to be filled. My astonishment was soon converted to terror. When I was carried on board, I was immediately handled and tossed around to see if I was sound stock. I was now persuaded that I had gotten to the world of bad spirits and that they were going to kill me. Their complexions differing so much from ours. 
Their hair and their language they spoke confirmed to me a belief. Indeed, such to my horror and fear, I realized in that moment that if I commanded ten thousand world's wealth, I would have freely parted with it all in exchange for my freedom. When I looked around the ship, I saw a multitude of black people of every description chained together, everyone wearing the same expression of dejection and sourness. I no longer doubted my fate. I was quite overpowered with it. I felt numb and fainted. Most slaves understood the extreme duress and despair that awaited their fate. The slaves of various European countries accused each other of keeping particularly foul ships. In truth, conditions on slave ships were basically the same among the European powers, just as forms of enlightened slavery were all basically the same. The height of the deck, which slaves restored, was somewhere between four and five feet, with shelves built into the hull so that the slave, changed two by two, could be slotted into a space no bigger than their own coffin. Each morning, the slavers rotated groups of men on the deck for a health check. They would be examined by the surgeon, who looked for sores or other signs of ailment. Depending on the diagnosis, a slave had a few fates. They could be fed more to bring them back to health, they could be isolated to another part of the ship to recover from a recoverable sickness, or they could be tossed overboard to drown, disposed of to prevent spreading of dangerous illnesses like smallpox to the entire cargo. Slaves were fed two meals a day in some form of rice, yams, or beans. No consideration was made for any regional or religious dietary restrictions. While eating, the slaves would be directed when to scoop when to place the food in their mouth, when to chew, and when to swallow. Any slaves founding to be attempting to starve themselves were severely whipped. And if that didn't work, rudimentary devices were used to force-feed any slaves who thought a hunger strike would mean anything. As keeping the health of slaves was paramount importance, when slaves were on deck and they started dancing or singing or exercising, this was encouraged and may have allowed them some sort of brief respite. At sundown, the men would be stored back into their half-decks to sleep on bare boards. A slave would be appointed to maintain order and keep the silence among the other slaves. This slave would be given rewards for their service, which could include being able to wear clothes, choice food, or better sleeping space. The claustrophobic conditions, along with the oppressive heat from the total lack of ventilation, would often be fatal for a couple of slaves each night. Although women and children freely walked the deck of the ship, that did not mean that female slaves had an easier voyage. They were naked and exposed both to the open ocean's weather and to the sexual exploitation of the ship's crew. In the evening, when the male slaves had all been locked into the hall, female slaves were sexually abused by the ship's crew. The officers selected a few preferred partners and gifted the use of the others to the crew. Sailing ships might have a single closed room for the captain's quarter. Everywhere else was public view, and these activities would be done in open, in full view of everyone on deck. If female slaves refused, they would be severely beaten and tortured until they complied. The atrocities which were flagrantly committed on a slave ship are little known in England. It was all considered only a matter of course, when slave women and girls were taken on board, stripped naked, trembling and terrified, exhausted with cold fatigue and hunger, 
They were often exposed also to the rudeness of savagery. The poor creatures could not understand the language, but the looks and manner of the speakers are sufficiently intelligible in the imagination. They were appraised, divided up on the spot, and only reserved until opportunity presented itself later in the night. Resistance or refusal was utterly in vain. The solicitation of consent was seldom thought of. This voyage across the Middle Passage was a living horror of claustrophobia, disease, and sexual violence. In the morning, it was not uncommon for the surgeons to find a slave dead, still fastened to a living slave sharing their same irons. Women, who sometimes found their way into ropes or linens, the ultimate escape from the horrors they faced. The practice of throwing dead slaves overboard brought sharks from miles around to feed on the bodies. Yet, even in the bleakest conditions, the human slave could not be totally submitted. Health was not the only reason the slaves had to be rotated each day. The slaves had to be inspected and their storage areas because those slaves would be trying their best to craft shims, makeshift knives, or any other weapon so that they could obtain one shot at vengeance against their captors. As the practice of European slaving developed, captains who could maintain a lower mortality rate were paid a premium. In the 1680s, the Royal African Company reported a 25% mortality rate across the Middle Passage and a century later, they reported a 6% mortality. But like any other economy, there were always ship captains that specialized in low mortality rates and those captains that were cheap. But the cheap ones got the job done enough. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.